Chapter 8 of Ghosts Being the Experiences of Flaxman Lowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tara Fatehi. Ghosts Being the Experiences of Flaxman Lowe by K and Heskett Pritchard. The Story of Sadler's Croft Although Flaxman Lowe has devoted his life to the study of psychical phenomena, he has always been most earnest in warning persons who feel inclined to dabble in spiritualism, without any serious motive for doing so, of the mischief and danger accruing to the rash experimenter. Extremely few persons are sufficiently masters of themselves to permit of their calling in the vast unknown forces outside ordinary human knowledge for mere purposes of amusement. In support of this warning, the following extraordinary story is laid before our readers. Deep in the forest land of Sussex, close by an unfrequented road, stands a low, half-timbered house that is only separated from the roadway by a rough stone wall and a few flower borders. The front is covered with ivy and looks out between the two conical trees upon the passers-by. The windows are many of them diamond-paned and an unpretentious white gate leads up to the front door. It is a quaint, quiet spot, with an old-world suggestion about it, which appealed strongly to pretty Sadie Corcoran as she drove with her husband along the lane. The Corcorans were Americans, and had to the full the American liking for things ancient. Sadler's Croft struck them both as ideal, and when they found out that it was much more roomy and comfortable than it looked from the road, and also that it had large lawns and grounds attached to it, they decided at once on taking it for a year or two. When they mentioned the project to Phil Strood, their host and an old friend of Corcoran, he did not favour it. Much as he should have liked to have them for neighbours, he thought that Sattler's Croft had too many unpleasant traditions connected with it. Besides, it had lain empty for three years, as the last occupants were spiritualists of some sort, and the place was said to be haunted. But Mrs. Corcoran was not to be put off, and declared that a flavour of ghostliness was all that Sadler's Croft required to make it absolutely the most attractive residence in Europe. The Corcorans moved in about October, but it was not till the following July that Flaxman Lowe met Mr. Strood on the Victoria platform. "'I'm glad you're coming down to Andy Corcoran's,' Strood began. "'You must remember him. I introduced you to him at the club a couple of years ago. He's an awfully decent fellow, and an old friend of mine. 
he once went with an arctic expedition and has crossed greenland or san joseph land on snowshoes or something i've got the book about it at home so you can size him up for yourself he's now married to a very pretty woman and they have taken a house in my part of the world i didn't want them to rent sadler's craft for it had a bad name some years ago some of your psychical folk used to live there they made a sort of greek temple at the back where they used to have queer goings-on so i'm told a greek was living with them called agapulos who was the archpriest of their sect or whatever it was ultimately agapulos died on a moonlight night in the temple in the middle of their rites after that his friends left but of course people said he haunted the place i never saw anything myself but a young sailor home on leave about that time swore he'd catch the ghost and he was found next morning on the temple steps he was past telling us what had happened or what he had seen for he was dead i'll never forget his face it was horrible and since then after that the place would not let although the talk of the ghost being seen died away until quite lately i suppose the old caretaker went to bed early and avoided trouble that way but during the last few months corcoran has seen it repeatedly himself and in fact things seem to be going on very strangely what would mrs corcoran wild and studying psychology as she calls it so mrs corcoran has returned that way yes since young sinclair came home from ceylon a few months ago and i must tell you he was very thick with agapolos in former times and people said he used to join in all the ruffianism at sadler's croft you'll see the rest for yourself you are asked down ostensibly to please mrs corcoran but andy hopes you may help him to clear up the mystery flaxman low found corcoran a tall thin nervy american of the best type while his wife was as pretty and as charming as we have grown accustomed to expect an american girl to be i suppose corcoran began that phil has been giving you all the gossip about this house i was entirely sceptical once but now do you believe in midsummer madness i believe there often is a deep truth hidden in common beliefs and superstitions but let me hear more i'll tell you what happened not twenty-four hours ago everything has been working up to it for the last three months but it came to a head last night and i immediately wired for you i had been sitting in my smoking-room rather late reading i put out the lamp and was just about to go to bed when the brilliance of the moonlight struck me and i put my head through the window to look over the lawn directly i heard chanting of a most unusual character from the direction of the temple which lies at the back of that plantation then one voice a beautiful tenor detached itself from the rest 
and seemed to approach the house. As it came nearer, I saw my wife cross the grass to the plantation with a wavering, uncertain gait. I ran after her, for I believed she was walking in her sleep. But before I could reach her, a man came out of the grass alley at the other side of the lawn. I saw them go away together down the alley towards the temple, but I could not stare. The moonbeams seemed to be penetrating my brain. My feet were chained. The wildest and most hideous thoughts seemed rocking, I can use no other term, in my head. I made an effort and ran round by another way and met them on the temple steps. I had strength left to grasp at the man. Remember, I saw him plainly with his dark Greek face. But he turned aside and leapt into the underwood, leaving in my hand only the button from the back of his coat. Now comes the incomprehensible part. Sadie, without seeing me, or so it appeared, glided away again towards the house. But I was determined to find the man who had eluded me. The moonlight poured upon my head. I felt it like an absolute touch. The chanting grew louder and drowned every other recollection. I forgot Sadie. I forgot all but the delicious sounds. And I, I, a nineteenth-century hard-headed Yankee, hammered at those accursed doors to be allowed to enter. Then, like a dream, the singing was behind me and around me. Someone came, or so I thought, and pushed me gently in. The moon was pouring through the end window. There were many people... In the morning I found myself lying on the floor of the temple, and all about me the dust was undisturbed, but for the mark of my own single footstep and the spot where I had fallen. You may say it was all a dream, Lo, but I tell you, some infernal power hangs about that building. From what you tell me, said Flaxman Lo. I can almost undertake to say that Mrs. Corcoran is at present nearly, if not quite, ignorant of the horrible experience you remember. In her case, the emotions of wonder and curiosity have probably alone been worked upon as in a dream. I believe in her absolutely, exclaimed Corcoran, but this power swamps all resistance. I have another strange circumstance to add. On coming to myself, I found the button still in my hand. I have since had the opportunity of fitting it to its right position in the coat of a man who is a pretty constant visitor here. The American's lips tightened. A young soldier who does tea planting in Ceylon when he has the health for it, but is just now at home to recruit. He's the son of a neighbouring squire, and in every particular of face and figure, unlike the handsome Greek I saw that night. Have you spoken to him on the subject? Yes. I showed him the button and told him I had found it near the temple. He took the news very curiously. He did not look confused or guilty, but simply scared out of his senses. 
He offered no explanation, but made a hasty excuse, and left us. My wife looked on with the most perfect indifference, and offered no remark. Has Mrs. Corcoran appeared to be very languid of late? asked Lo. Yes, I have noticed that. Judging from the effect produced by the chanting upon you, I should say that you were something of a musician? said Lo irrelevantly. Yes, replied the other, astonished. Then uh, this evening, when I am talking with Mrs. Corcoran, will you produce the melody you heard on that night? Corcoran agreed, and the conversation ended with a request on the part of Mr. Lowe to be permitted to make the acquaintance of Mrs. Corcoran, and further to be given the opportunity of talking to her alone. Sadie Corcoran received him with effusion. "'Oh, Mr. Lowe, I'm just perfectly delighted to see you. I'm looking forward to the most lovely spiritual talks. It's such fun!' You know I was in quite a psychical set before I married, but afterwards I dropped it, because Andy has some effete old prejudices. Flaxman Lowe inquired how it happened that her interest had revived. It is the air of this dear old place, she replied, with a more serious expression. I always found the subject very attractive, and lately we have made the acquaintance of a Mr. Sinclair, who is a... She checked herself with an odd look. Who knows about it all? How does he advise you to experiment? asked Mr. Lowe. Have you ever tried sleeping with the moonlight on your face? She flushed and looked startled. Yes. Mr. Sinclair told me that the spiritualists who formerly lived in this house believed that by doing so you could put yourself into communication with um, other intelligences. It makes one dream, she added. Such strange dreams. Are they pleasant dreams? asked Flaxman Lowe gravely. Not now, but by and by he assures me that they will be. But you must think of your dreams all day long, or the moonlight will not affect you so readily on the next occasion, and you are obliged to repeat a certain formula, is it not so? She admitted it was, and added, But Mr. Sinclair says that if I persevere, I shall soon pass through the zone of the bad spirits, and enter the circle of the good. So I choose to go on. It is all so wonderful and exciting. Oh, here is Mr. Sinclair. I'm sure you will find many interesting things to talk over. The drawing room lay at the back of the house and overlooked a strip of lawn shut in on the further side by a thick plantation of larches. Directly opposite to the French window where they were seated, a grass alley which had been cut through the plantation gave a glimpse of turf and forest land beyond. From this alley now emerged a young man in riding breeches, who walked moodily across the lawn with his eyes on the ground. In a few minutes, Flaxman Lowe understood that young Sinclair had a pronounced admiration for his hostess, the reckless, headstrong admiration with which 
a weak-willed man of strong emotions often deceives himself and the woman he loves he was manifestly in wretched health and equally wretched spirits a combination that greatly impaired the very ordinary type of english good looks which he represented while the three had tea together mrs corcoran made some attempt to lead up to the subject of spiritualism but sinclair avoided it and soon mrs corcoran lost her vivacity which gave place to a well-marked languor a condition that low shortly grew to connect with sinclair's presence presently she left them and the two men went outside and walked up and down smoking for a while till flaxman low had turned down the path between the larches sinclair hung back you'll find it stuffy down there he said with curved nostrils i rather wanted to see what building that roof over the trees belongs to replied low with manifest reluctance sinclair went on beside him another turn at right angles brought them into the path leading up to the little temple which low found was solidly built of stone in shape it was oblong with a pillared ionic facade the trees stood closely round it and it contained only one window now void of glass set high in the further end of the building low asked a question it was a summer-house made by the people who lived there formerly replied sinclair with brusqueness let's get away it's beastly damp it is an odd kind of summer-house it looks more like low checked himself can we go inside he went up the low steps and tried the door which yielded readily and he entered to look round the walls had once been ornamented with designs in black and some glittering pigment while at the upper end a dais nearly four feet high stood under the arched window the whole giving the vague impression of a church one or two peculiarities of structure and decoration struck low he turned sharply on sinclair what was this place used for but sinclair was staring round with a white working face his glance seemed to trace out the half-obliterated devices upon the walls and then rested on the dais a sort of convulsion passed over his features as his head was jerked forward rather as if pushed by some unseen force than by his own will while at the same time he brought his hand to his mouth and kissed it then with a strange prolonged cry he rushed headlong out of the temple and appeared no more at sadler's croft that day the afternoon was still and warm with brooding thunderstorm but at night the sky cleared now it happened that andy corcoran was amongst many other good things an accomplished musician and while faxman low and mrs corcoran talked at intervals by the open french window he sat down at the piano and played a weird melody mrs corcoran broke off in the middle of a sentence and soon she began swaying gently to the rhythm of the music and presently she was singing 
Suddenly, Corcoran dropped his hand on the notes with a crash. His wife sprang from the chair. Andy, where are you? Where are you? And in a moment she had thrown herself, sobbing hysterically, into his arms, while he begged her to tell him what troubled her. It was that music. Oh, don't play it any more. I liked it at first, and then all at once it seemed to terrify me. He led her back towards the light. Where did you learn that song, Sadie? Tell me. She lifted her clear eyes to his. I don't know. I can't remember. But it is like a dreadful memory. Never played again. Promise me. Of course, darling. By midnight, the moon sailed broad and bright above the house. Flaxman Lowe and the American were together in the smoking room. The room was in darkness. Lowe sat in the shadow of the open window, while Corcoran waited behind him in the gloom. The shade of the larches lay in a black line along the grass. The air was still and heavy. Not a leaf moved. From his position, Lowe could see the dark masses of the forest stretching away into the dimness over the undulating country. The scene was very lovely, very lonely, and very sad. A little trill of bells within the room rang the half-hour after midnight, and scarcely had the sound ceased when from outside came another, a long, cadenced, wailing chant of voices in unison that rose and fell faint and fore off but with one distinct note, the same that Lowe had heard in Sinclair's beast-like cry earlier in the day. After the chanting died away, there followed a long, sullen interval, broken at last by a sound of singing, but so vague and dim that it might have been some elusive air throbbing within the brain. Slowly it grew louder and nearer. It was the melody Sadie had begged never to hear again, and it was sung by a tenor voice, vibrating and beautiful. Lowe felt Corcoran's hand grip his shoulder, when out upon the grass Sadie, a slim figure in trailing white, appeared advancing with uncertain steps towards the alley of the larches. The next moment the singer came forward from the shadows to meet her. It was not Sinclair, but a much more remarkable-looking personage. He stopped and raised his face to the moon, a face of an extraordinary perfection of beauty such as Flaxman Lowe had never seen before. But the great, dark eyes, the full, powerfully moulded features, had one attribute in common with Sinclair's face. They wore the same look of a profound and infinite unhappiness. Come, Corcoran gripped Flaxman Lowe's shoulder. She's sleepwalking. We will see who it is this time. When they reached the lawn, the couple had disappeared. Corcoran leading, the two men ran along under the shadow of the house, and so by another path through the back of the temple. The empty window glowed in the light of the moon, and the hum of a subdued chanting 
followed out amongst the silent trees. The sound seized upon the brain like a whiff of opium, and a thousand unbidden thoughts ran through Flaxman Lowe's mind. But his mental condition was as much under his control as his bodily movements. Pulling himself together, he ran on. Sadie Corcoran and her companion were mounting the steps under the pillars. The girl held back as if drawn forward against her will. Her eyes were blank and open, and she moved slowly. Then Corcoran dashed out of the shadow. What occurred next, Mr. Lowe does not know, for he hurried Mrs. Corcoran away towards the house, holding her arm gently. She yielded to his touch and went silently beside him to the drawing-room, where he gilded her to a couch. She lay down upon it like a tired child and closed her eyes without a word. After a while, Flaxman Lowe went out again to look for Corcoran. The temple was dark and silent, and there was no one to be seen. He groped his way through the long grass towards the back of the building. He had not gone far when he stumbled over something soft that moved and groaned. Low lit a match, for it was impossible to see anything in the gloom under the trees. To his horror, he found the American at his feet, beaten and battered almost beyond recognition. The first thing next morning, Mr. Strood received a note from Flaxman Lowe, asking him to come over at once. He arrived in the course of the forenoon, and listened to an account of Corcoran's adventures during the night, with an air of dismay. "'So it's come at last,' he remarked. I'd no idea Sinclair was such a bruiser. Sinclair? What do you suppose Sinclair had to do with it? Oh, come now, Lowe, what's the good of that? Why, my man told me this morning, when I was shaving, that Sinclair went home some time last night, all over blood. I'd have a guess at what had happened then. But I tell you, I saw the man with whom Corcoran fought— he was an extraordinarily handsome man, with a Greek face. Strood whistled. By George Lowe, you let your imagination run away with you, he said, shaking his head. That's all nonsense, you know. We must try to find out if it is, said Lowe. Will you come over tonight and stay with me? There will be a full moon. Yes, and it has affected all your brains. Here's Mrs. Corcoran, full of surprise over her husband's condition. You don't suppose that's genuine? I know it's genuine, replied Lowe quietly. Bring your Kodak with you when you come, will you? The day was long, languorous and heavy. The thunderstorm had not yet broken, but once again the night rose cloudless. Flaxman Lowe decided to watch alone near the temple, while Strood remained on the alert in the house, ready to give his help if it should be needed. The hush of the night, the smell of the dewy larches, the silvery light 
with its bewildering beauty creeping from point to point as the moon rose, all the pure influences of nature seemed to Lowe more powerful, more effective than he had ever before felt them to be. Forcing his mind to dwell on ordinary subjects, he waited. Midnight passed, and then began indistinct sounds, shuffling footsteps, murmurings, and laughter, but all faint and evasive. Gradually, the tumultuous thoughts he had experienced on the previous evening began to run riot in his brain. When the singing began, he does not know. It was only by an immense effort of will that he was able to throw off the trance that was stealing over him, holding him prisoner. How nearly a willing prisoner he shudders to remember. But habits of self-control have been Lowe's only shield in many a dangerous hour. They came to his aid now. He moved out in front of the temple just in time to see Sadie pass within the temple door, waiting only a moment to make quite sure of his senses and concentrating his will on the single desire of saving her, he followed. He says he was conscious of a crowd of persons at either side. He knew without looking that the pictures on the wall glowed and lived again. Through the high window opposite him, a broad white shaft of light fell, and immediately under it, on the dais, stood the man whom Mestalo, in his heart, now called Agapulos. Supreme in its beauty and its sadness, that beautiful face looked across the bowed heads of those present into the eyes of Mr. Flaxman Lowe. Slowly, very slowly, as a narrow lane opened up before him amongst the figures of the crowd, Lowe advanced towards the dais. The man's smile seemed to draw him on. He stretched out his hand as Flaxman Lowe approached and Lowe was conscious of a longing to clasp it, even though that might mean perdition. At the last moment, when it seemed to him he could resist no longer, he became aware of the white-clad figure of Sadie beside him. She also was looking up at the beautiful face with a wild gaze. Lowe hesitated no longer. He was now within two feet of the dais. He swung back his left hand and dealt a smashing half-arm blow at the figure. The man staggered with a very human groan and then fell face forward on the dais. A whirlwind of dust seemed to rise and obscure the moonlight. There was a wild sense of motion and flight, a subdued, sibilant murmur like the noise of a swarm of baths in commotion. And then Flaxman Lowe heard Phil Strood's loud voice at the door, and he shouted to him to come. "'What has happened?' said Strood as he helped to raise the fallen man. "'Why, whom have we got here? Good heavens, Lowe, it is Agapulus. I remember him well.' "'Leave him there in the moonlight. Take Mrs. Corcoran away and hurry back with the Kodak. There is no time to lose before the moon leaves this window. 
the moonlight was full and strong the exposure prolonged and steady so that when afterwards flaxman low came to develop the film but we are anticipating for the night and its revelations were not over yet the two men waited through the dark hour that precedes the dawn intending when daylight came to remove their prisoners elsewhere they sat on the edge of the dais side by side strewed at low's request holding the hand of the unconscious man and talked till the light came i think it's about time to move him now suggested strewd looking round at the wounded man behind him as he did so he sprang to his feet with a shout what's this low i've gone mad i think look here flaxman low bent over the pale unconscious face it bore no longer the impress of that exquisite greek beauty they had seen an hour earlier it only showed to their astonished gaze the haggard outlines of young sinclair some days later strood rubbed the back of his head energetically with a broad hand and surmised aloud this is a strange world my masters and he looked across the cool shady bedroom at andy corcoran's bandaged head and the other world's a stranger i guess put in the american drilly if we may judge by the sample of the supernatural we have lately had you know i hold that there is no such thing as the supernatural all is natural said flaxman low we need more light more knowledge as there is a well-defined break in the notes of the human voice so there is a break between what we call natural and supernatural but the notes of the upper register correspond with those in the lower scale in like manner by drawing upon our experience of things we know and see we should be able to form accurate hypotheses with regard to things which while clearly pertaining to us have so far been regarded as mysteries i doubt if any theory will touch this mystery strood objected i have questioned sinclair and noted down his answers as you asked me lo here they are no thank you will you compare my theory with what he has told you in the first place agapolus was i fancy one of a clique calling themselves dianists who desired to revive the ancient worship of the moon that i easily gathered from the symbol of the moon in front of the temple and from the half-defaced devices on the walls inside then i perceived that sinclair when we were standing before the dais almost unconsciously used the gesture of the moon worshippers the chant we heard was the lament of adonis i could multiply evidences but there's no need the fact also tells that the place is haunted on moonlight nights only sinclair's confession corroborates all this said strood at this point corcoran turned irritably on his couch moon worship was not exactly the nicest form of idolatry he said in a weary tone but i can't see how that accounts for the awkward fact 
that a man who not only looks like agapulus but was caught and even photographed as agapulus turns out at the end of an hour or so during which there was no chance of substituting one for the other to be another person of an entirely different appearance and to this that agapulus is dead and sinclair is living and we have an array of facts that drive one to suspect that common sense and reason are delusions go on lo the substitution as you call it of agapulus for sinclair is one of the most marked and best attested cases of obsession with which i have personally come into contact answered flaxman low you will notice that during sinclair's absence in ceylon nothing was seen of the ghost on his return it again appeared what is obsession i know what it's supposed to be but Cochran stopped. I should call it in this case as nearly as possible an instance of spiritual hypnotism. We know there is such a thing as human hypnotism. Why should not a disembodied spirit have similar powers? Sinclair has been obsessed by the spirit of Agapulus. He not only yielded to his influence in a man's lifetime, but sought it again after his death. I don't profess to claim any great knowledge of the subject, but I do know that terrible results have come about from similar practices. Sinclair, for his own reasons, invited the control of a spirit, and having no inherent power of resistance, he became its slave. Agapulus must have possessed extraordinary will force. His soul actually dominated Sinclair's. Thus, not only the mental attributes of Sinclair, but even his bodily appearance became modified to the likeness of the Greek. Sinclair himself probably looked upon his experiences as a series of vivid dreams induced by dwelling on certain thoughts and using certain formula, until this morning, when his condition proved to him that they were real enough. That is perhaps all very well so far as it goes, put in Strode. But I fail to understand how a seedy, weakly chap like Sinclair could punish my friend Andy here, as we must suppose he has done, if he accept your ideas, Low. You are aware that under abnormal conditions, such as may be observed in the insane, a quite extraordinary reserve of latent strength is frequently called out from apparently weak persons. So Sinclair's usual powers were largely reinforced by abnormal influences. I have another question to ask, Lo, said Corcoran. Can you explain the strange attraction and influence the temple possessed over all of us, and especially over my wife? I think so. Mrs. Corcoran, through a desire for amusement and excitement, placed herself in a degree of communication with the spiritual world during sleep. Remember, the Greek lived here, and the thoughts and emotions of individuals remain in the aura of places closely associated with them. Personally, I do not doubt that Agapulus is a strong and living intelligence, and those persons who frequent the vicinity of the temple 
are readily placed in rapport with his wandering spirit by means of this aura. To use common words, evil influences haunt the temple. But this is intolerable. What can we do? Leave Sadler's Croft, and persuade Mrs. Corcoran to have no more to do with spiritism. As for Sinclair, I will see him. He has opened what may be called the doors of life. It will be a hard task to close them again, and to become his own master. But it may be done. End of chapter 8